Hi, I'm Jeremy Kirk, executive editor with Information Security Media Group. Ransomware went from sort of like a digital petty street crime to something that's now very much a national security concern and a huge concern for enterprises. So did law enforcement take it seriously enough in those early days? With me today is Renee Dudley, who's a reporter with ProPublica. She's the co-author of a book called The Ransomware Hunting Team with Daniel Golden. The book is about a group of technical volunteers that fight what is the Internet's greatest crime wave. Thank you very much for joining me, Renee. Yep, glad to be here. Thanks very much for having me on. So back in, you know, ransomware has been around for a very long time, like even in the 80s, but there was this resurgence in like 2013, 14, and 15, and it was often a lot of like consumer PCs just being hit for a few hundred dollars. Um, You know, you have a whole chapter in your book dedicated to how law enforcement reacted to ransomware. What was it? What did you find how they were reacting in those early days? Yeah, what we have to keep in mind is, you know, these days, ransomware is considered a top priority um, for the U.S. federal law enforcement. Really, after the colonial attack in May 2021, it it, it got taken seriously here. FBI Director Chris Wray compared it to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. It's at that level of national priority. Department of Justice set up a ransomware task force, and they've been having some recent successes. But The FBI is behind the curve on this. And the reasons for that go all the way back to the J. Edgar Hoover days of the FBI before before the dawn of cybercrime, far before the dawn of cybercrime. And what I mean by that is the FBI has this longstanding mantra that agents should be able to do any job anywhere. So in other words, they want agents... First of all, they want their agents to be athletic college graduates who are, you know, glad to move around the country and um, pivot off of cybercrime, you know, as needed, and yes. um, you know, pivot from one job to another, um, and, and be willing to shoot a gun and all the rest. You know, they, there's a certain expectation for what agents should be, and a part of that expectation is 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 that agents should be able to do any job anywhere, and it's been around for as long as there have been agents. Um, that works okay if you are a gang investigator and you're going to go do bank robberies because that's where the FBI needs you. That does not work as well if you are a gang investigator and the FBI wants to make you a cyber investigator. Because as you know, there's an incredibly steep learning curve. Um, you know, these are highly specialized skills, and the people who are really good at it have spent a lifetime learning computers and just keep building on their skills and building on their skills. Um, when I explain this to my family, you know, I use the analogy, you know, my, my dad started taking guitar lessons as an adult. He's a very nice guitar player. He'll never be Carlos Santana, you know? Sure, I mean, you, sure, you, can't, yeah. you can't make you can't make somebody, um, you know, into um, a top rate cyber investigator who's going to be the best at what they do if that's not their background, experience um, or interest, really. So that's not to say that there haven't been people who check all of the boxes of what it means to be a traditional law enforcement agent, complete with the gun and the physical fitness and all the rest. Yeah. Um, but the people who you know, the people who check all those boxes and are also, you know, deep 
you know, have deep technical knowledge and are computer scientists, these people are in the minority, right? Yeah. And so the time frame that you're talking about, um, you know, as ransomware is getting really getting tracked traction in those early years, like the crypto locker, you know, the first few years after Bitcoin, um, you know, gave ransomware a new life, right? Yes. Um, agents started talking about, you know, we got to get a handle on this. This is going to be the next big thing. You know, it was already evolving into something more by that 2015 time frame. But when they brought these concerns to leadership, Leadership said, why would we care about ransomware? Ransomware is an ankle biter crime. Um, you know, this is not something we need to be paying attention to. And why do they and, call it an ankle, ankle biter crime? Is it, is it just merely the amounts that the ransomware actors were asking for at the time that put it at that low level? That's, part, that's a big part of it. The other part is cultural. And these agents... There's a you know a very telling episode from that same 2015 time frame where a group of these agents who had deep technical skills, again, they're in the minority, but um they're they're um you know, you know, these are people who um were frustrated. They were frustrated because when they wrote a technical report, um, and you know, again, it's not much rant, you know, they weren't really authorized to do big investigations into ransomware at this time. But when they would do technical reports about whatever cybercrime they were investigating, they would have to, you know, they they said they would have to dumb them down because their um su- their supervisors didn't get it. They had they had to relate everything to cars or make some analogy because they they just really didn't understand. And so these people were fleeing the bureau. They could not, you know, although retention for agents in general is very good, retention for agents in the cyber division was not good. And so James Comey, who was then director of the FBI, got a dozen of these guys together and said, I want, you know, I, I want you to come to lunch with me and I want you to explain why we're, why we're facing this brain drain. What can we do to make you stay? And so they they did. They came. And, you know, to your question, you know, a big part of why the FBI wasn't taking ransomware seriously came down to something that these agents brought up in this meeting with Comey, which was the cyber division could not get the respect of the Bureau at large. Um, the cyber division was widely referred to as the geek squad. Um, you know, the FBI is a very clicky place. It's, um, you know, yeah. a very macho culture. You know, they were the geeks in the sea of jocks and SWAT team guys, the people who joined the FBI because they want to bust down doors, um, not investigate um, computer crime. And so they describe how their skills are both misunderstood and undervalued um, by the bureau at you know as a whole. Um, and these jabs that they would deal with, you know, do you have to have a keyboard in your backpack when you're you know doing your physical fitness test? You know, do you have to do pull-ups with a keyboard in your backpack? That kind of thing. <laughs> it, it just it was you know it's funny. I mean, it is funny, but it it erodes this already yeah. um you know very fragile sense of belonging you know they are viewed as lesser than um and their skills are both not understood and um not viewed as Im- 
as important as um, people on other squads. And you have to remember that, you know, leadership at, at this time and still really now um, are people who came up th through the ranks in the aftermath of 9-11. They are experts and view as important physical security. And, you know, they're not wrong, but it, their mentality is protecting the physical space. You know, the, the priority is on physical crimes and cyber crimes are just not viewed as important. And therefore, ransomware was viewed as this geek squad crime. In 2018, 2019, and 2020, ransomware suddenly becomes even more intensified. Uh, yeah. You know, the cybercrime economy is becoming, or, or uh, supply chain is becoming more prof professionalized. There's higher ransoms. Um, do you think that earlier law enforcement intervention might have left us in a better place today than we are now? Yeah, I mean, over that time, it's not like there was nothing happening. You know, in in November of 2018, there was the Sam Sam indictment. Um, but it, uh, frankly, that highlights yet another issue, which is, you know, historically and even today, the FBI has had a huge emphasis on arrests. Prestige comes from being the agent who helped, um, you know, lead an investigation into a case that led to an arrest, an indictment that and prosecution that, you know, is going to make the nightly news. And as you know, arrests are really hard to come by in, um, you know, in, in, in ransomware cases, because yes. so often the hackers are in places that don't have extradition treaties with the U.S. And even if you indict, you know, you, it would, you know, really hard to do, you know, to track down the hackers um, and actually come up with an indictment. It's it's hard to ever actually see justice because they're never, you know, unless they make a mistake in vacation in the wrong country, they're not actually going to be arrested. And yeah. so, um, you know, th there were missed opportunities for other ways to, um, you know, to seek justice. So, you know, in the book, we contrast the FBI with the Dutch National Police, which, as I'm sure you know, has widely been seen as the gold standard, um, you know, among global law enforcement authorities who really do cybercrime right. And they focused on what they like to call off-center targeting. So, you know, like everybody, you know, like everybody, like the FBI, like any other global law enforcement authority, they face the same issue where arrests are hard to come by. So they've gotten around that by by going after hacker infrastructure. Um, they have been really aggressive with botnet takedowns, infra infrastructure takedowns. You know, a lot of um, criminal infrastructure is hosted in the Netherlands, um, and they've they've gone really hard against against that type of infrastructure and. It, it, it's 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 pretty much anything that will reduce hackers return on investment. And, you know, like anything, it's it's kind of a whack-a-mole, but it, it, they've been extremely effective in doing this. And um, that kind of stuff helps. And it's not something that we've seen the FBI focus as heavily on. And um, so in the time frame, in the time range that you're talking about, you know, as you know, sort of the 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 2018 
Ryuk um, um, and others following suit with six-figure ransoms, you know, the whole the whole economy of ransomware really heating up. Um, there were some missed opportunities to go after this sort of off-center targeting. Yeah, off-center targeting, that's really interesting because um, as you know, we were talking earlier about here in Australia, there was a very large health insurer uh that was hit by a ransomware gang. Um, they caught them before. They encrypted, but they didn't catch them before they took right. uh, the claims data for 9.7 million people. And now Australia is very is being very aggressive and says, we're going to hack back against the hackers, right? We know they're in Russia. Yeah. We know their names and we're going to fight back. And so maybe that's, um, you know, I guess, uh, illustrative of, of how the Dutch kind of le- led the way there and sort of going, you know what, we don't have to sit. This is different kind of law enforcement now. Like yeah. things have changed, well- right? Exactly, and and interestingly, the Dutch credit Australia with um, with some of the ideas that they've had that have been really successful. And one of them, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is that you know, so the Dutch National Police has its high tech crime unit, which does the heavy duty technical investigations. And part of what makes them so successful is that they pair. Every traditional law enforcement officer, you know, people with just your traditional cop background with a computer scientist, computer scientists have to comprise half the staff. And so when they're doing these investigations, they're working literally side by side at desks, comparing notes. One person knows how to, you know, do network traffic analysis and reverse engineer malware, write code on the fly. And the other person knows how to actually interface with the public, interview suspects. And it, 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 it's it's a really a winning model and um, something that they they saw first in Australia. Yeah, that's terrific. That's terrific. And so I guess, you know, you alluded this, to this uh, earlier, too, that a lot of people just left uh, the FBI, the people who had the cyber skills. And, um, you know, in cybersecurity in general, you know, there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, just skills shortages. And so yeah. what I mean, how do you think that that agents that have cyber skills can be retained in light of, you know, once they are good at what they do, there's right, right. any of a thousand different, yeah. you know, data forensics, incident response right. firms that would be interested in taking them on and are especially sure. appealing because they have that F, uh, that FBI, um, you right, know, experience. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, and it's interesting because, you know, in the this is this is part of the reason people flee, right? You know, their their skills, unlike other agents, um, you know, and other types of crime, their skills are immediately transferable to the public, to the private sector and in high demand. You know, these people leave making multiples of their government salaries. Um, But they're they're, you know, at this James Comey meeting that I referenced earlier, um, the agents who were, you know, who who we interviewed about the brain drain. And, you know, I'll note that of the 12, you know, a good number of them were, you know, had already put in notice and, uh, you know, much of the remainder would leave over the next couple of years. Um, They actually had concrete suggestions for Jim Comey about, um, what what the FBI could do to improve retention. And it wasn't just, you know, raise everybody's salaries. Um, it was, um, you know, so it, it sort of goes back to this any job anywhere mantra. So take that any job, you know, people who have spent a lifetime becoming cyber experts, they don't want to pivot off of 
investigating computer crime. So, you know, like your typical FBI agent may, you know, switch from job to job in the bureau as, you know, they need people to. But, you know, cyber investigators, they don't necessarily want to go do, you know, white collar crime or gangs or what have you yeah. um, because their their passion is computers. Right. So there's one. Number two is the anywhere mantra. So, you know, typically in the bureau, um, I mean, it, it's sort of like the military in that regard. Um, you know, people for advancement, you have to go where the bureau sends you. And so, you know, you may move from New York or D.C. to Wichita, Kansas or, um, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, just far flung corners of the country where you know, you have to uproot your family, you know, your partner might not have a job opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, that's a lifestyle that, you know, people know about when they sign up to, to to become an agent. But again, when when you have people whose skills are so in demand um, in the private sector, it, it's almost like something's got to give, right? So what they had suggested at this meeting was, why not create we don't have to be anywhere because it's not like bank robbery where we have to be near the scene of the crime why not just make you know a field office for us in dc or new york or you know some you know near some big headquarters office and just put your entire cyber division there and yeah. you know you know don't make us move to you know in other words their they, the, their ideas were um, kind of rethinking the whole notion of what it is to be an agent, you know, because they would sort of give special status um, to cyber division people. But you know, in light of the brain drain, like I mentioned, something just something's got to give, right? Yeah, it's quality and, of life, and you can uh, you can study cyber crime from a work from home job. Why not? You know, <laughs> right? Exactly, and and nobody's suggesting you know doing this from home, but um, given the sensitivity of what they're working with, but you know, I would go even farther than 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 they did. Um, you know, some of the agents that I interviewed for the book. They they think it's time for and I think that this is this is very smart. It's time for like a cyber agent 2.0. So like I mentioned at the top, you know, right now, cyber investigators are expected to be athletic college graduates with relevant job experience, willing to move around the country, willing to be in a deadly force scenario, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Think about the people who are your computer, your classic computer experts. Think about the members of the ransomware hunting team, the people in our book. I mean, I don't see, you know, our our ransomware hunting heroes, Michael Gillespie and Fabian Wosar, you know, with a gun. I mean, Lord knows they don't even like interacting with the public, right? Exactly. So, yes, yes. So, you know, I, I would say, and I think that there is, um, you know, especially among, you know, ex-agents, um, you know, there's, there is um, a sense that, the bureau needs to completely rethink what it means to be an agent when dealing with this new type of crime. You know, I, I mean, it's it's not it's not the crimes that the bureau has historically dealt with, and they need to rethink how to approach it. Yes, you know, yes, from the ground yeah, up. Yeah. I want to ask you about. Um... 
<laughs> what some predictions kind of for the future and i i want to um, i i haven't put this on our list of questions we actually had to switch yeah. this from a video interview to an audio interview because uh renee's got her daughter with her <laughs> right now yep. so we've actually got another person on the interview as well but i'm, I'm wondering you know here in australia i mentioned the attack against the big health insurer here and so the government came out on um Last weekend, uh, we have a minister for cybersecurity, actually, uh, which is a relatively new position in government. And she said that the government was considering banning uh, ransom payments, um, which is an idea that has uh, immediately resonated with a lot of people. Um, and one that also caused a lot of people who are intimate with uh, ransomware and how this works to, to bristle. What do you what do you think about uh, that sort of thing? And 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 is that a would that be an effective deterrence mechanism? Yeah, you know, and it's it's come up in this country too. Uh, I think it's North Carolina that um, created a state law that any. Um, any public entity in North Carolina cannot cannot pay a ransom. Yes, uh, yes. And you know it's interesting, but w- you know what what do you do if if you know you don't have good backups? Um, if um, and if you know the hunting team you know hasn't come up with a way to decrypt without paying paying the hackers, or if you just don't have the money. So it, it's your classic, you know, you know, regulating people perhaps out of business. Um, on the other yeah, hand, yeah. you know, the um, you know, the epigraph of our book is um, uh, taken from a Rudyard Kipling poem called Dane Geld. And the line is, if once you have paid him the Dane Geld, you never get rid of the Dane. Right. So right. it's 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 not wholly off base. You know, it, it's like as long as people pay ransoms, ransomware hackers are going to do their thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. True. And I think I heard something, uh, you know, there was a podcast that was adapted from some of your um, stories, your great work with ProPublica. And I, I think one of them started off with the anecdote of what happened in Italy in the 1970s when when kidnappings were uh, quite a big thing. And so they banned yeah. ransom payments. And then the result was, well, some people did get killed, unfortunately. But, ran, uh, you know, kidnapping, the kidnapping problem went away. So yeah. uh, eventually, so I guess that's, that's kind of the point is we're at is like, well, how, you know, if we did ban ransom payments, how long would it take the, um, uh, you know, attackers to go, oh, we won't attack Australia or we won't attack North Carolina. Right. But I, I'd also argue that like, look, like, well, you may not get a ransom, but the data is still valuable. So, right. So right. like half yep. of the cybercrime economy is just simply selling data to other criminals yep. and banning ransoms doesn't solve that problem at all. Right. And it doesn't right. improve anyone's cybersecurity at all either. So I'd argue, well, you kind of have, you're, you're still going to have a problem, right? Right. right. Of people you have you still have something of value that they can take from you and maybe they can't right. get it both ways. But um, I mean, it's a very complicated discussion, isn't it? Like, sure. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. And then, you know, when you think about, you know, t- to that point and you think about the future, you know, I I have a number of um, law enforcement sources who, um, you know, you know, describe the evidence that they've seen that ransomware is now sort of cover for um, intelligence gathering operations by enemy governments. I mean, there's no question that, you know, if if the ransomware gangs aren't acting 
at the behest of enemy governments, they're at the very least operating with their protection. I mean, you can look no further than Evil Corp, Evil yes. Corp's Maxime Kubitz, you know, driving around Moscow with his Lamborghini license plate translating to thief, you know, right. and um, of course the Conti, you know, um, proclamation, yeah, that they're that they're uh, you know glad to um, target the quote Western warmongers, and you know, I know there's questions about how tightly they're connected, but you know, they're at the very least feeling protected. Um, and, you know, so when you think about these data breaches that you mentioned, um, you know, people have this perception that ransomware is, you know, thugs and criminals and, you know, just trying, everybody's out there trying to, to make some money and, and, you know, look at, look at some of the targets and it's extremely sensitive data. Um, you know, the hackers are getting their payday, but this data, you don't know where it's ending up. I mean, it could be in Putin's Absolutely. hands for all we know. Um, yeah. And so the more sensitive the targets, your sort of national defense contractors, your big corporations, I mean, you can certainly see anything from corporate trade secrets and intellectual property to state secrets and military intelligence and anything, anything, um, you know, being in the hands of um you know, our, 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 you know, our, our enemies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on, on the vein of also just sort of prevention and how this, if this problem is going to go on, you know, many countries like Australia has got a ransomware action plan. Uh, the U S has put out a big uh, study of it as well. I think last year or the year before Europe has got things moving on this as well. And all those involve, you know, law enforcement cooperation and scrutiny of cryptocurrency exchanges, diplomatic yeah. efforts, and, you know, occasionally the kind of uh, perhaps offensive action against these gangs. What do you think is going to be effective uh, in the end? And, and what, what's your sort of prognosis for uh, the ransomware problem in the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think some of the recent stuff that we're seeing um, through the the U.S. Justice Department's ransomware task force is starting to look more like what has been successful in other countries with um you know, I mean, this, you know, for lack of a better word, the, you know, as the Dutch call it, the off-center targeting, looking at the um other parts of the ecosystem, not just the person at the very top, you know, not just the you know, the Maxime Kubitz or the, um, you know, the two guys at, at the top of the Sam Sam operation, um, you know, not just not just the absolute top bosses, but looking at your money launderers and your um, cryptocurrency exchanges and, you know, some of the affiliates. I mean, you know, there was the, the Canadian guy who was arrested on yes. the connection with NetWalker, uh, you know, you know, you know, looking at the affiliates and, um, you, you know, the, the people who make the whole economy work. Um, and then, you know, also looking at um, taking down infrastructure. I mean, I think, you know, it, it, there is some reluctance to, um, you know, it's, it's the whole question of, do you take down the infrastructure or do you, you know, once you become aware of it, just study it and monitor it and um, not do anything with it. And, yes. you know, maybe going after some of that more aggressively, um, you know, and, and that that all seems um, to be working in in other countries. And, uh, you know, I think we'll see more of that here. 
Excellent. Renee, well, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, glad glad to be here. And sorry about the uh, video uh, snafu. <laughs> That's no problem. We'll turn it in audio a bit. So I've been speaking with Renee Dudley. So she's a technology reporter at ProPublica. <clears throat> Her book, which she co-authored with Daniel Golden, is out now. It's called The Ransomware Hunting Team. So if people are familiar with uh, firms like uh, Emsisoft, Fabian Wosar, and Michael Gillespie, uh, you will be very interested in this book, which is a very deep dive into uh uh, how you fight ransomware on a technical level. So thanks a lot, Renee. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, great to be with you.